we're going to continue our studies in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. If you have your devices, you can open it up on there as well. And, and we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 3. Now, what I found beautiful about that image that Isaiah brings up that Jesus quotes is, is that God is doing all these things in our life. He's bringing dancing from mourning. He's bringing rejoicing from sorrow. And then he gives us an identity marker as the people of God. He says, so that you can be oaks of what? Oaks of righteousness. Isn't that fascinating? So when we talk about righteousness, what are we talking about? Um, this is going to be the main premise of what Peter's going to be revealing to the church is that the church has a calling, an identity to be a people of righteousness. And so we could go with the basic definition of righteous is a concept of you are in right relationship with God, you are right relationship with others, you are right relationship with creation, with nature and the environment, and a right relationship with self. But what would it look like for someone to be a righteous person? How would we begin to define someone who is righteous? Now, I'm setting you up because I have a quote in my mind that I've quoted many times here to define a righteous person, but I want to hear from you guys. How would you define a righteous person? Yeah, peace with themselves and others and with God, yeah. Yeah, a disciplined person, yeah. Yeah, someone who exercises mercy and justice, yeah. What are some other concepts of a righteous person? Generous. Yeah, generous. Yeah. That's a very key one, Wayne. Pardon? They're in. There's joy in them. Yeah, they have a joy. Yeah. Yeah, humility, Leon. Yeah, a person of integrity. Yeah. A holiness, yeah, a set-apartness, yeah. Not I, but Christ, yeah, actually union with Christ, living out the life of Christ, yeah. Compassionate, yeah. These are all good terms. Now, I'm going to give us a definition where pretty much everything we talked about fits under this category. But to me, the most beneficial definition that I've got in terms of righteousness is by an Old Testament scholar named Bruce Walke, who's probably one of the most prominent Old Testament scholars. And so he studies the Hebrew language very intricately, and he looks across Scripture as how just righteousness is used. And this is the definition he came up with. And I've said this a number of times, and I hope it sticks with you guys, that righteousness, a righteous person, is someone willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others, right? Someone who's willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. And so that would be something like generosity. That would be something like sacrifice. That would be something like holiness, right? Someone who's willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others or the community. Now, a wicked person then, on the other hand, would be what? A wicked person would be someone who... Yeah, advantages themselves for the disadvantage of everyone else, right? 
In other words, they put their own needs first. They care about themselves first. They're, they're focused on self rather than the community. And so a biblical definition of righteousness is, is a church then, a community filled of individuals who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. Now, think of it in this context. When, when we talk about, um, Peter talks about submitting to human institutions, right? We've talked about that. Now, what are some human institutions that we can think of where righteousness would just be completely social transformative of them? What are some human institutions where a concept of a righteous person would absolutely change a culture? Yeah, a government, a government that is willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of people, right? And citizens that are even willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the rest of the community, 100%. What are some other ones? Family, I mean, that's a massive one, especially parenting, right? Who parents feel like a lot of their life is disadvantaging themselves for the sake of their children, right? Is that not the summary of parenting? Sacrifice for your children, giving up so much time, energy, money, investment, all these things for your children. I mean, that's a literal definition of righteousness, exercising righteousness in the home, right? What are some other social spheres that would be transformed by righteousness? Pardon? Yeah, churches. Imagine if we all sacrificed our own desires, our own premises, our own opinions, all these things for the advantage of the community. How beautiful would that be, right? And that's, in the end, our calling. That's part of what we're called to be as the people of God. And, and if any place righteousness should be shown, should it not be the church? And this is what Peter is really going to get after this morning. He's going to say, if there's any place in all the social structures of society that righteousness should be shown, it should be shown among the people of God. That's the first and foremost place you see that, right? Because we, we talked about in these last few weeks, there's, there's evil structures everywhere in this world, isn't there? There's so many evil structures in this world, and, and so we need a, a mentality and identity to function out of as the people of God to truly be righteous people. And so this, again, is the vision that Peter is laying before us as the church is really to be a, a righteous community that transforms not just us, but the world around us. And so he's going to go on to say this. Let's look at the first few verses here. And so we're going to start in, in verse 8 of chapter 3 as we've been walking through this text together. And again, the, the first word that Peter says here is finally. Now, what does that mean? Finally, this whole section, this conversation is coming to an end. Now, what has been this whole section that we've been studying together for these last three weeks? What is the big subject line, topic line? Submission, right? We said this is something we don't like to talk about, but this is what Peter wants to talk about. And so we first of all looked at what does it look like to submit to governing authorities. We looked at what does it look like to serve and submit for a slave to its master. What does it look like for a woman to submit to an unbelieving husband? And we looked at all these contexts where, where Peter is thinking these may seem like impossible places to submit, but this is actually where the 
the gospel, what Jesus is able to accomplish in the life of his people actually gets put on full display. And so now he's coming to the premise. He's saying, finally. In other words, this is sort of a summary statement of a lot of what he's been talking about before. And I can just imagine all the questions going on in, in the churches that Peter is sending this letter to of all these questions of submission, thinking about what about this circumstance? What does this look like? What about what I'm going through, right? Anyone else sort of asking those questions these last number of weeks, right? There's all these questions. Well, what does it look like in this context? I I don't know. And, And Peter really here gives this beautiful summary of saying, you're asking questions about all these things, and here's a summary statement which answers them all. This is what it looks like to submit to the community around you. So he says, finally, all of you, who's all of you? Everyone in the church, right? Every single person of every church that he's writing to, this applies to you. This has implications for you. And he says, all of you have unity of mind. Interesting. Unity of mind. Now, Again, we throw uh, a church family together with different backgrounds, different experiences, different cultures, even different languages at times. You throw them all together. Is unity a hard thing to find? (laughs) What is our only hope for unity, church? Jesus, right? So he says, have unity of mind. In other words, put the gospel at the forefront of everything you do. Put Jesus at the forefront of everything you do. Live and submit to him ultimately because that is the only way you're going to find unity. He says, if you focus on anything else, unity is lost. It's only Christ that unites us. And so he says, have unity of mind, a sympathy. What does it look like to have sympathy in the church? Yeah, to feel each other's pains, to sympathize with one another, to actually um, have care and concern and patience and humility, all these things, right? And so again, this characteristic now, uh, a brotherly love. It's the concept of Philadelphia, right? Anyone heard of the city? It actually comes from the Greek word, brotherly love, right? And it's this concept of have this family love among you. Have, have this family mentality as the church, that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is what binds you together as an identity. And then it says, a tender heart and a humble mind. A tender heart. What does a tender heart look like? The opposite would be a hardened heart. Someone with a hardened heart is always antagonistic, always against. Someone with a tender heart is soft and approachable, conversational, right? And then the last one, a what type of mind? Humble. Humility. Humility. See, especially in this past year and a half, it has been very difficult to have a humble mind, hasn't it? (laughs) There has been such a surge of pride and arrogance and, and thinking that we can know it all in all circumstances and all contexts. And, and Peter says, no, church, you have to have humility with one another. You have to speak and humble yourselves and engage in conversation. And so he says, have this humble mind. And so he, he brings all this up 
because he's writing again to churches that are experiencing hardship from the culture around them. It's not this formal persecution, but it's this mockery and reject, rejecting nature of culture and society because they are Christians. And so, they're facing all this opposition from the world around them. They're facing all this evil from the world around them. And so, Peter reminds him, he says, you church have enough opposition out in the world. You church have enough uh, slander and resentment and accusation out in the world. He says, do you need it in here? Do you need it among us? No. Peter says you're called to be righteous in this context. He says you have enough evil and suffering and hardship in the world around us. The last thing you want is to have it between your brothers and sisters. So Peter's saying there's, there's no room in the church for gossip. There's no room in the church for insults. There's no place for divisive talk. So be unified. Be sympathetic and be loving. That's the vision that he gives the church. Now, this is the next thing he says, verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for what? Evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, what are you called to do? Bless, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, here's our natural response. Our natural way to respond to evil is evil, right? Someone punches you, what's your response? Punch them back, right? Someone makes fun of you or ridicules you, what's your natural response? Yeah, get back. And so we talked about this about three weeks ago, how so often in history we see just the cycle of evil happening, right? Retaliation, evil for evil, and there's this vicious cycle that has occurred not just individual lives, but all of societies where evil is growing and manifesting. But what the kingdom of God, what the way of Jesus is, is a complete opposite. And he says, sometimes we want to react just like when Peter drew the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Sometimes we want to react like that. There's a threat, and so I'm going to fight against it. I'm going to go and fight it out. But Jesus calls us to something different. In fact, he also calls us to the opposite. And so as tempting as it may be for us to return insults with insults, as tempting as it may be to strike back when we are striked or win an argument, Peter calls us to bless. Now here's what blows my mind about this, is we don't even get the out of just non-retaliation. You know what I mean? Non-retaliation is a little easier, right? Even being passive is a little easier. Okay, someone punches me, so I'm just going to walk away, right? Someone insults me, so I'm just going to walk away, which is what often we teach kids. But what does Jesus call us to? To bless. Isn't that mind-blowing? It's, it's farther than just non-confrontation. It's, it's farther than just non-retaliatory. It's actually instead seeking the blessing of that person or that institution or whatever it may be and actually praying for blessing over their life. A blessing is this special favor. It's calling down God's gracious power. And when people mock us or ridicule or accuse us or attack us, we're called to, instead of even just being non-retaliatory, we're called to even bless. Now, who struggles with that? <laughs> that is a deep struggle. It's hard enough just to be non-retaliatory, isn't it? It, it? We need the power of the Spirit to truly 
bless. And so this active, active suffering is part of the calling we have. And so we see that the natural way to respond with evil is evil, but the supernatural way for us to respond to evil is blessing. Now, I want you to process this for a second. Even, even think of the last maybe conversation or relationship you had when, when someone was incredibly antagonistic against you or accusing against you or attacking against you, whatever it may have been, um, who here responded with blessing in that? <laughs> yeah, a couple of you, that's good. <laughs> this is a hard thing to do. This is a hard thing to do. And so, Peter's going to give us some, some reasons why we should be pursuing this and, and giving us an encouragement for why this should happen. So, he says in verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on who? The righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Peter is saying the very way that we respond to these difficult circumstances of suffering has everything to do with our relationship with God. It's drastically influenced by our relationship to God to the point that if you are acting righteously, and again, righteous person would be, okay, I am receiving suffering. There is a disadvantage to my life right now because of what's being done or said about me, but instead of, uh, instead of replacing that evil with evil, I'm going to bless. You are literally disadvantaging yourself, aren't you? You are literally taking something that's incredibly difficult to take, and yet you have the heart to bless still, seek the welfare and well-being of the community and the other person. That is exactly what God is talking about here. Now, what's scary to comprehend is it says, the face of the Lord is against those who do what? Who do evil. I mean that if you're a person consistently responding evil with evil, and you're not blessing, and if you're not a person of righteousness, then God's face is against you. And He will won't bless you. He won't bless you in those circumstances, in the situation. And so, we suffer well, we go through hardship well by blessing and being blessed by God. And so, we are called then to this, this new social construct a social construct that makes absolutely no sense in our culture, does it? It makes no sense. If I were to tell some of my non-Christian friends that, you know what, when someone's mocking you and ridiculing you, why don't you just seek out to bless them with something? Why don't you be generous out of your way? They would say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't like this person. I don't need a relationship with them. They don't deserve that, right? And that can often be our own mentality as well, but we are called to bless. And so, this purpose, then, is to win over our enemies so that they too may glorify God. 
That means we're intercede and pray for those who want to demean us. We are to do good to those who want to do evil against us because those who do evil also need Jesus. Amen? And if you simply respond to their evil with evil, what's going to be their implication about who Jesus is? That He is evil. If you respond to their evil with blessing, are you not showing the gospel the good news of a God who even though we rebelled against Him, even though we rejected Him, even though we displayed evil against Him, He still showed grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and chose to bless us? That's how we display the gospel. Amen, church? That, that's what we need to be focused on. That's what we need to be remembering. That's what we need to be living out. And so we realize that we as Christians, we're, we're not called to fight against, we're not called to mock, we're not called to ridicule, but we're called to pray and love and bless even our enemies. And Jesus actually told us that we don't just love our neighbors, we don't just love our family, we even love our enemies. That's where the gospel really shines through, isn't it? When those who reject you, mock you, ridicule you, that you can still in turn bless them. That is the heart and the character of God. And so, yeah. It's the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to work through us, right? We can't bless in our own power. We can't bless those who do evil against us in our own power. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the supernatural heart of God to do this. Amen to that. Now, let's go on here. Peter goes on to say, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So if you're going around blessing people, loving people, being merciful and gracious to people, um, that's a good way to turn enemies into friends, isn't it? <laughs> But Peter says, now who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be what? You will be blessed. Blessed by God. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so here's, here's the premise that Peter's giving. He's saying, when you experience suffering and you bless, that's how you ultimately receive the blessing of God. That's how you experience the blessing of God. And, and I love this, this concept of, of blessing even in the midst of suffering because I remember someone asked C.S. Lewis this sort of existential question. They asked C.S. Lewis, they said, why do the righteous suffer? In other words, another way of saying that is why do good things happen to bad people? But the right way of saying it is the righteous people of God. Why do the righteous people of God suffer? And C.S. Lewis said this. He says, well, they're the only ones that can take it. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They're the only ones that can take it. 
Why? Because they have the heart of God. They have the Holy Spirit. They have a God who blesses them and shines His grace and mercy on them so profoundly that they can in turn reduce it to others. That's the only hope. That's the only possibility of making it happen. And so we have this hope and we have this blessing in our suffering because we have God. And so we can go through suffering, we can go through hardship, we can endure these things because we realize that God has a purpose for our suffering. He's transforming us. He's changing us. But not only that, we have hope beyond our suffering. Amen, church? We have hope of all things being made right. We have hope that even though we have a light and momentary affliction in this world, as Paul says, nothing is compared to the glory of God to be received for eternity. There, there's temporary suffering, there's temporary affliction, but none of that is even in comparison to what we have in the hope of knowing God. And so this is where... Paul gives this beautiful reason for why we can endure suffering, and Peter brings up that same reality. Now, here's another section that I want to talk about, and this is probably the most complicated section. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and there's a few things that are incredibly complex and hard to understand, but I'm going to address them here. So it says this, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay, so that's a summary statement of what Christ has done. What did Christ do for us? He suffered for our sins. In other words, when we rejected, when we rebelled, when we sinned against them, Christ suffered on our behalf. That gives us hope as suffering people. And he says, he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, restore relationship. Now, here's where it gets complex. It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, talking about his resurrection, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and has at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Now, who gets confused in that verse? All right? This, this is a wild one. Like, this is, this is like probably the top verse in the New Testament to bring complications, especially when we talk about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. What is all this talk about Noah and the days of Noah? And so I find this passage quite fascinating, actually. Um, there's a theologian, Selwyn, who said, there are few passages in the New Testament which have exercised commentators more or given a greater variety of interpretation than 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. And Millard Erickson, who's a Baptist theologian, he said when he calculated this verse, this section of verses, has over 180 interpretations. Okay? A lot of complex things going on here. A lot of hard things. And, and even Martin Luther said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage possibly than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means, okay? <laughs> so this is an incredibly complex passage. Thankfully, 
I didn't have to spend 50 hours studying this passage because I had one of my professors, he wrote a peer-reviewed documentation article on specifically this passage dealing with all the interpretations. So instead of going through 180 with you guys, I'm just going to process a lot of his research. I credit this to him, but to give you an implication of what's going on here. And so the, the main point of this passage, first of all, the main thing that Peter is trying to say is that righteous suffering leads to vindication, okay? Righteous suffering leads to vindication. And just as Christ suffered for us and yet was glorified and vindicated by the Father, Peter is saying, in the same way, you as the church, when you endure righteous suffering, you too will find vindication. You too will experience vindication. And this is how he describes it. He describes Christ as this person who is willing to die on our behalf. And it's this comfort that he's bringing to us because often when we endure suffering for righteousness' sake, we feel that God has abandoned us. We feel that we are powerless in it. We feel that we have no hope in it. And we naturally think that we are no longer in God's presence or that he has abandoned us. But here's the reality that Peter's trying to bring out to us. If Christ himself is not exempt from suffering... Why should you be? You hear that? If Christ Himself is not exempt from suffering, then why should you be? If He, though perfectly just and righteous, and He experienced suffering, and yet we who are criminals and rebellious um, sinners against God, all the more should experience suffering. But Peter's encouragement to us then is just as Jesus suffered and was vindicated, so we too in our suffering will one day be vindicated. And so he says this passage, he says, being put to death in the flesh, Jesus was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Okay? This is where this passage gets really complicated. This, where, this is where there's such a variety of interpretation of what's going on. And if you want to go really Bible nerd with me later on, we can do that privately. I don't want to go Bible nerd with everyone here. You might get bored, okay? But let me explain what's going on. So here we have these spheres of existence. We have the sphere of fleshly existence, and we have a sphere of uh, spiritual existence, and so when Peter says Jesus was put to death in the flesh, he's referring to the physical body of Jesus, okay? And his humanity or his human existence. But when Peter says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit, what is he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual or the supernatural sphere. And so in his death and burial, Christ was in the sphere of human natural existence. But after his resurrection... Christ now exists to a new mode of existence referring to His resurrected body. Now, this is important because one of the interpretations that comes across is that this is something that Jesus did between His burial and His resurrection, right? How many days was Jesus in the tomb? 
three days, right? And there's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of questioning, there's a lot of pondering about what happened during those three days. And, and there are some scholars who say, well, what happened during those three days is exactly what Peter is talking about. And there is some validity to that view, um, but it's one that I don't necessarily hold. Um, so there's this question of what happened in those three days, but to me, when Peter specifically talks about being made alive in the Spirit, we're talking about resurrection. So this is something that happens post-resurrection. And so Peter's talking about something that took in a period between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is something that is post-resurrection. And so what did Jesus say then post-resurrection? And who did he proclaim to? What does this verse tell us? Now, again, there's so many answers to this question, but let me simply give you mine just because it's so much to address here. But what I really believe Peter is saying here is that after the resurrection of Jesus, he went, as Peter describes here, down to the realm of evil, to the evil spirits, and proclaimed victory over the spiritual evil world. And Christ here is proclaiming his victory over sin to the evil spirits. And so what Jesus is proclaiming here is this victory and statement of defeat over Satan and the demonic and evil realm. It's saying that I have defeated sin and evil in my death, burial, and resurrection, and there's nothing you can do. God has won the victory. Amen? And that's the statement that be, is being made when he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's this bold declaration that God has won the world, war. And so it's this claim that it is finished. The war is over and Jesus has won. That is what we celebrate as the church. Now, here's more complications. Now, verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, we're asking in our mind, like, what is this doing here? What is this flood and the story of Noses have anything to do with the righteous suffering that leads to vindication? Well, here Peter is talking about how the survival of Noah and his family were this type of Christian salvation. This, this foretaste, this foreshadowing, because this is exactly what we see Noah's family go through. Uh, think of the suffering that Noah's family endured. I mean, what was the state of the world when Noah existed? It was evil upon evil upon evil upon evil, right? It was, it was incredibly wicked. So you, you just imagine the suffering that Noah endured. And so the people of Noah's day, what we see them doing is rejecting God's warning and rejecting Noah's warning to repent and turn from their sins. And we find them even mocking Noah, mocking God, ridiculing him, slandering him, all these things. And so Noah suffered for what is right. He suffered for righteousness' sake. Understand? And the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. And who was it that was saved? Noah and his family, right? The righteous. And so Peter's saying, when you, when you look at the story of Noah, almost see it in your own story. When you see a world around you that rejects you and ridicules and mocks God, 
When you experience slander and hardship and pain, he's saying, remember the story of Noah? Even though evil dominated the world, Noah still got to experience the salvation of God. And even today as we look around and we see evil dominate the world, amen to that, we have the same hope and trust in God for salvation, that He will deliver that He will rescue, that He will be vindicating us. And so then He ties this to our baptism as well. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the same reality that sort of the story of Noah had to do with water and God's salvation and rescue through water, same way with our baptism. We're, we're saved not because of the physical act of obedience, because of our association with Christ in our baptism, of experience the death to sin and evil and raising up to newness of life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that vindicates, that is a testimony, that is a, a statement of reality of what God is doing for us. Then here's the last verse. It says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him? See, to me this is such a beautiful way for Peter to end this section. But he's, he's saying when you, when you look around the world and you see all the chaos and evil, you experience all the suffering that you have to endure, he says, remember this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus has all authority, even over angels, even all the human institutions, even all the powers that are part of this world. We have a God who has triumphed over everything, who is victorious and who is ruling and reigning on our behalf where everything is subject to Him. Is that not good news, church? And, and so here's what Peter's bringing home. This is what I'll close with. He says, when we enter into this world and we experience the hardship, the pain, the persecution, the suffering, all the things that entail being a Christian, he says, first of all, you are called to be righteous. And, and this is what righteousness looks like. Everything he expressed there. He says, first of all, protect the church family so that righteousness grows and flourishes and thrives. Because we have so much suffering out there, we don't need more suffering from one another in here. And then he says, in your call to be righteous, the hardest points in your life to be righteous are when everything is against you. And when everything is going wrong, and when you're being attacked from all sides, and he says it's tempting to come up with a lot of excuses. It's tempting for the, the, the slave or the worker to fight against the unjust master or boss. It's tempting for the Christian wife who has an unchristian husband to still respect and honor him. 
it's, it's tempting for us when we see the government so flawed, making so many mistakes to submit to them. It's tempting for us to make all these circumstances and excuses of how we treat another relationally. But Peter is saying, you know what? You don't need to make excuses in this life. You can actually endure suffering and walk in and through suffering with God because Jesus is victorious. He is making all things right. One day you will be vindicated for it all. Now, that's a tough thing to hear, isn't it, church? (laughs) Because we want things to be made right now. We want things to be perfect now. And Jesus is reminding us, and the Scripture is reminding us, uh, be patient. Jesus is king. He has authority over everything. He will make all things right. Everything we go through in this period of this lifetime will be nothing compared to what it means to live in eternity with Him. And so trust Him, rely on Him, depend on Him, And as you do so, make sure that you are not repaying evil for evil and that you are exercising righteousness even when it's the most difficult thing in your life to do. Think we can do that, church? Amen, with God's help, right? And that's what I expected to hear. That's our only hope in this. Right? Not by flesh, not by might, but by God's Spirit. That, that's our only hope. We cannot be righteous on our own. And so, again, this is entering into the presence of God. This is a dependence upon God to bring transformation into our life to as we worship the righteous one in Christ Jesus that we in our union with Him are righteous as well. And that is the identity, that is the power that we function out of. And if we do that, there's so many implications in Scripture that this this changes society, this changes culture, this changes your family, this changes your workplace, this changes the church, this changes everything if we truly submit to it and live by it. So let's do that. Let me pray to that extent. Gracious Father, we come before you, realizing that we have no power on our own to be people of righteousness. Lord, we are people who constantly return evil for evil. Lord, we are constantly those who fight against our enemies. We constantly reply uh, insult with insult. And yet you have called us to be so much more. You have called us to enter into those hardships of life and those hard relationships with people instead of just non-retaliation, you have called us to bless them. Lord, to even love and bless our enemies. Lord, that is so against what we desire to do, and yet that is the exact thing that you have called us to do. So, Lord, we pray the power of your Spirit would be upon us so that we would be a righteous people, 
so that our righteousness would exude to our children, so that our righteousness would exude to our co-workers, to our righteousness exude to our families, so that our righteousness would exude to our spouses, so that our righteousness would even exude to our enemies. Lord, this is a difficult calling, which is why you have to remind us that there will be vindication. That just as Jesus suffered for us, the righteous one, and yet was vindicated by the Father, Lord, too, we share that same hope. Without that hope, Lord, I don't think we could endure. But you set that before us. And so I pray for us that we would have wisdom, that we would have discernment, that we would have patience, that we would have love to truly be a righteous people for your kingdom, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, may we receive your blessing as we bless others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.